Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! So, um, first, uh, so it's cool how uh, like broadcasting and doing things online uh, it has like a really big reach, and we get to like talk to people that we normally wouldn't get to talk with, and we get to share the gospel with people that we don't normally get to share the gospel with. And my auntie Jojo, uh, she tunes in every single Sunday to watch us and be a part of what's happening here. So, Auntie Jojo, hello. I just wanted to say I love you. All right. So, there's my shout out to <laughs> Auntie Jojo. Uh, but that's just neat, though. Like when she told me that she she gets to tune in every Sunday and um, be a part of this, uh, it's just it's neat, right? That we get to do those kind of things. So, there's um, when like when again when we take like a step of faith and say, okay, I I really do want to meet Jesus as He is. I want to be able to like enter into this relationship with Jesus, what does that even mean? And so there's a few statements I wanted to start off with this morning just to get you thinking about what Jesus Christ did for you and, again, what that means for you in real time, real life. Because at Quaybog, we really try to make things as practical as we can, like life applicationable as possible, right, so that you can take what is in Scripture and say, okay, that's telling me something about God, but it's also telling me something about me right, in my life, in this world that I live in, right? And so when you consider Jesus and the reality, again, meeting Jesus as he is and your own life, there's a few statements I want you to consider. So first up, Jesus understands your pain, your suffering, your difficulty, and your loneliness. So Jesus understands your pain, your suffering, your difficulty, your loneliness. Because he lived these things out. He lived pain. He lived suffering. He lived difficulty and loneliness. Second thing to consider, he understands how unfair your life can be. I talk to a lot of people that are either considering Christ or they follow Christ, and they have these kinds of questions, like, why is this happening? Why This is so unfair. Why is this going down? And it's like Jesus Christ himself was a victim, so to speak, of unfairness. Now, he made himself a victim of that, and you're going to see he's not actually a victim, but he was actually in a place where his life was completely unfair. Third thing to consider. It's okay. I'd read it, but I don't know where my notes are. I'm doing this sermon without notes, just so you know. So, So Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned by people that you count on. So here's Jesus, and here's him like living a life with these guys for three years. He's invested in these guys, and when the moment of truth comes, they bail on him. You know, they totally bail on him. That is Jesus' reality. So does he understand what it means to live life in unfairness, live life abandoned by those that you love, to be misunderstood, to be gossiped about, right? And then ultimately to suffer at the hands of people that you're just trying to help, right? No kind turn goes unpunished, right? People will say, right? And it's like, well, yeah, welcome to Jesus' reality, right? So, 
starting off chapter 18, like this is like, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. It's like what Jesus did really does make a difference when we begin to enter into relationship with him. Yes, it gives us direct access to God, but what he suffered through should impact us in the way that we approach Jesus, how we pray to Jesus, our understanding of how he understands us. So in John chapter 18, verse 1, we have this, this scene unfold here, right? So after Jesus had said these things, so chapters 14 through 16 in the upper room, and then the prayer that he just gave, he went out with his disciples to the garden. So remember, he just got done teaching. He just got done praying, like pouring everything he could into his disciples, right? Guys, this is it. Like, this is happening. It's going down. He just said in John chapter 17, the hour has come. Five times in the gospel of John, the hour's not come. The hour's not come. The hour's not come. All of a sudden now, Jesus knows what's going on, and after he had finished praying in John chapter 17, where we were last week, he went out with his disciples to the garden. And so this is it. This is the moment where Jesus Christ absolutely knows what's about to happen, and he's stepping into it for us. So here's what I would like you to consider. Again, before we get into any of this, here's Jesus just pouring into his guys, and he's going to go out into the garden with them. And I want you to consider this morning what he goes through emotionally. Again, we think about the torture, we think, and we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. We think about the cross, but have you ever really considered what Jesus had to go through before the first slap was even thrown at his face? Like, for real, what did Jesus have to walk through before the first person even took a shot at him? Because it happens pretty quickly when he's brought into the presence of Annas, the, the former high priest. Somebody just hauls off and slaps him. Then he gets punched. He gets beaten. A lot of bad things happen to him. Before any of that, in his hour of need, what was it like to be Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man? You want to take a fancy phrase home today? That's called the hypostatic union. There'll be a test next Sunday. So here he is. I want you to consider fully God, but fully man. What did Jesus walk into? So he walks into the garden. And Judas, here comes Judas, he takes a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, right? So these are officials representing the Pharisees, the guys who totally hate Jesus, who totally recognize that Jesus Christ saw himself as God, the guys that are finally going to get Jesus. This problem is finally going to be over. We're sending out our guys. We've got Judas on our side. We're going to catch him all alone and picture the scene. And they're going to come with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So here's Jesus Christ, right? If you see the other gospels, you see that Jesus is like, hey, could you guys just be faithful for like an hour with me? And what do they keep doing? They keep falling asleep. I guess I don't really need this anymore, do I? So see how good my memory is. So they are in a position of like absolutely needing to be there for Jesus Christ. And what happens? Jesus Christ sees this scene coming all by himself. Lanterns, torches, weapons. Think about it. these are These are soldiers that are coming. So you're hearing the clinking of the armor, right? You're hearing the swords. You're hearing the steps of the boots. And he knows exactly what is going to happen. And he's in this moment. I just want to be clear. In this moment, he knows he's all alone. He absolutely knows he's all alone. Because look at what happens here. Then Jesus phrase, knowing everything that was about to happen, went out and said to them, who is it you're seeking? And this is, the, like, this is amazing that Jesus not only knows what's going to happen, but he steps out into it boldly and he says, all right, so who are you here for? 
doesn't wait for him to come. Again, he knows what his mission is. And I, like as I said earlier, Jesus is not a victim of circumstance. I've heard like skeptics before say, like, man, how cruel is God that he would send his only son to die for everybody else? I would never sacrifice my son for everybody else. But again, that's why it's important to know who Jesus Christ actually is. That's why it's important to receive Jesus as he said he is. He's not a hapless victim. He is God, fully God, in a man, Jesus Christ. And he came on a mission of redemption for us. Jesus was not a hapless victim. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he stepped into it intentionally, on purpose, because that was his mission. All right? Keep going. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And here's again the, the Greek wording. I am he, the Greek phrase there, ego ami, which is a, a Greek phrasing of the Old Testament name, Yahweh. I am. So what's recorded here in Greek is a translation, so to speak, of Old Testament Yahweh God's name. Hebrew or Exodus chapter 3. Here Jesus is again claiming the name of God. Judas who betrayed him was also standing with them. Next. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. Now, Brittany talked about this scene a couple weeks ago, and she talked about the, the power of the name of God. The power of the name of God. What has been lost to us, I think, and uh, even in like modern-day Judaism. So even a Messianic Jew, which is a Jew that has accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah, even they will not say the name Yahweh. They refuse to say the name of God because they feel like if they do, they're going to take it in vain. But the thing is, though, God not only reveals it in Exodus 3, all throughout the Old Testament, he keeps saying, use my name, use my name, use my name. Now, what happens is they start to abuse it. They start to use it in vain. And so eventually he gets to the point, he's like, all right, stop. You're just abusing my name and you're actually sinning in my name. But then in this very gospel where we are, Jesus Christ himself says, chapter 14, chapter 16, when you pray, I want you to pray in my name. Up till now, you have not prayed in my name. You have not, have prayed, you have not prayed this way. But now, I want you to pray in my name. It's why we say, and I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Because Jesus said, I want you to use my name. Why? Because there's power in the name of Jesus, right? Hebrew, Yeshua, Greek, Jesus, right? Jesus Christ. Like there's power in the name that Jesus has given us. And he says, I want you to use it. In John 17 from last week, he said, Yahweh, you gave me your name. I have your name. So there's power in the name. The only, the only rule we have is don't abuse it. Don't use it in vain. Don't use it lightly. But there's power in the name and we should use it. So have you ever taken the time to pray the name of Yahweh God, the name of Jesus Christ over our country? Over that coworker that's driving you crazy, over that teacher that always seems to have it out for you, over whatever, right? Will you use the name of God and say, Lord, over my kids, I want to gather my kids together and I want to pray the name of Jesus Christ over them because Jesus says there's power in his name. Like, do we do that? Because there's, there's like clear evidence in scripture that we need to be doing that kind of stuff because there's power in the name of Jesus. And these guys were like forced to recognize it. So keep going. Then he asked them again. Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And again, here, next verse. I told you, I am he. Ego am me, Jesus replied. I think that's my iPad somewhere. So if you're looking for me, I don't know, the train's already out of the station. Uh, let these men go. He says, let these men go. I hear it somewhere. Is that it? You can bring it up. All right. I've been doing all right, though, right? I mean, it's like kind of remembering... 
Maybe most of it so far, right? This is why I can't take this thing off the stage when I, when I get off. So, so the servant's name was Malchus, though. Um, so I want you to notice this last verse here. So here's Simon Peter, who has a sword. And I want you to consider this for your life here. No, Siri, I won't need you, right? I want you to consider this guy Malchus here. So here these guys come, right? And everybody has been asleep, right? Think about this. Everybody has been asleep. Jesus is repeatedly going and saying, look, can you just be faithful for just one hour? Like, has Jesus ever said that to you? Like, would Jesus get that upset and frustrated with you? Like, could you just forgive me an hour? Would you just give me an hour where you'll be faithful to me? And you're like, ah, I don't know. It's been a long week, Jesus. Right? Because that's kind of what his guys were doing. So it's like Jesus understands that tension. And so here they come, this guard. Everybody wakes up. It's panicky. Peter's probably not even awake yet. But if you know Peter, he does things before he thinks about him. Right? It's like kind of why he's one of my favorite characters. Right? And he's like all in, but he, you know, kind of a bull in a china shop. And I've definitely been there in my life. So he's got a sword. He draws it out and he strikes the high priest's servant and cuts off his right ear. Now, can you imagine this scene though? right? Can you imagine being the other disciples? And it's like total chaos. And then here's Peter like pulling out the sword and it's like, oh man, what is he about to do? Right? And then he just lops this dude's ear off, falls to the ground. In Luke, we have like the retelling, like not the retelling, but we have a different like view of this. And he includes the details that Jesus picks it back up and puts it on the dude's ear and like, and like heals it. I mean, again, imagine that scene, right? How quickly these kinds of things happen. The ear falls down. The other disciples are like, what? And then all of a sudden, Jesus picks it back up. You got all the other guards walking or watching. They just like, you go knocked down by the name of Jesus. So they're up on their feet now. And then all of a sudden, it's like, and what do you do with that? Right? What do you do with that scene as it just happened? And think about Malchus for the rest of his life. Like, talk about like a story that's going to one-up everybody forever right? You go to a dinner party and they're like, oh, Malchus, come over here and tell us about that story, right? And so his whole life is going to be altered by this. And I always wondered, this dude, like what happened to that guy? How did this affect his life and the others that were there that saw just these events? And, but here's the thing that I, I want us to consider, aside from the craziness of this scene, because it can kind of end there. But notice that Peter steps into this thinking that this is reliant on his actions alone. He's going to take the mission of Jesus and what Jesus says he was here to do, and he senses that he's got to make, make this right somehow. So he gets out his sword and he starts slinging it around. And the where I begin to think about this week is I wonder how often in my life have I been like that? How often have Christians been like that? Where there is the mission of Jesus Christ, and we feel like, I've got to get out my sword and I've got to go to war for Jesus because he's not going to be able to do it his way because Jesus basically said, I need to be a servant. Jesus needed to said, I have like radical love, like that I need to be super giving and super humble. I need to put people before myself. I need to shut my mouth. I need to stop being so angry. Lord, we can't move the football down the field acting like that. So I'm going to get my sword around and I'm going to start just slinging it. And I don't care who gets hurt. And today our swords are social media. Our swords are politics, right? You know what's happening in younger generations? And here's the question that we must consider as Christians. How badly do we want the next generation to know Jesus Christ as Savior? What is really the answer to the solution of the problems that we're seeing in our society? 
all these things that seem to be on fire everywhere we go, is our decision going to be much like Peter and say, well, I need to get out my sword and I need to fight it with violence. I need to fight it my way. I need to be a person of action and I'm a person of action. So I want to take action. It's hard for me just to be like, okay, Lord, if there's all this stuff going on, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to pray the power of your name. And I'm just going to know that like, if I love my neighbor and like, and that echoes out, no, I want to do stuff. I want to do stuff. And at times I want to fight people, right? If I see injustice, if I see somebody harming another person, yeah, like I want to make their face hurt, you know, like that's kind of where I go. But it's like, but Jesus is not like a mission of bloodshed. It's just not like we're not going to go out and fight the world with our sword. And we got to understand that there's a lot of people looking at the American church and saying there's a bunch of really angry and bitter people there. There's a bunch of people that are more concerned with their political party than they are the savior that they talk about. And I don't really want anything to do that, you know, with, with that. I just, I don't really, I don't see why I should be a part of that. And as followers of Jesus Christ, like we really have to self-examine and say, am I out there with my sword trying to fight Jesus battle for him? Or am I trusting that his way really is the best way? Because here's something to consider. A historical fact is that Christianity spread to the entire world and literally took down the Roman Empire, as far as like spiritually was concerned, through sacrificial love, through service, through humility, through sharing the gospel and believing that the Holy Spirit was going to change people, not political might or opinion, because they had none. Nobody was listening to them, right? But they were going out and they were sacrificially loving people and sharing the gospel. And it literally changed an empire. Like, historically speaking, it literally changed an empire and changed the way people thought things were normal in the Western Hemisphere. Like, that's insane. And so here's this, I think, is a great lesson for us to consider from the life of Peter and his action here. Because as the story unfolds, go to the next verse. At that, Jesus said to Peter, look, put it away. Put that sword away. Am I not to drink the cup my father has given me? Like, this is the mission. This is why Jesus Christ came. And Paul would actually say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He would point to this very thing, and he would say this. I don't, I don't have it in, up on the screen, but in 2 Corinthians 10, he would say, although we live in the flesh, it's like this recognition, like, yep, I live in this world, but he says, we do not wage war according to the flesh. We are not going to spread the gospel, in other words, the way that people spread their ideas, because this world is toxic. Since the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but are powerful, powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Bloodshed is not the mission of Jesus. Hatred, anger, bitterness, not the mission of Jesus. It's not. We're going to use power through God. And that's trust. That's trust to look at the world around you and be like, something has to happen. And then your immediate response be like, and it needs to be Jesus. And it needs to start with me. Like, that is hard. That's like trusting that God is more powerful than you. And in this moment, Peter wasn't quite sure. And so he gets a rebuke from Jesus. And Jesus knew, next up, that he would be abandoned by his disciples. So Jesus, actually, it's interesting. There's a verse in Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus, about this very scene. And again, think about the loneliness. Think about the rejection of Jesus in these moments. Up next, 13.7. Sword, awake against my shepherd. Against the man who is my associate. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd, according to his own words. But then the second part. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus Christ knew this was going to happen on the night of his crucifixion. 
He knows this is going down and even quotes this. He understands he's going to be all alone when he needs people the most. So again, what does that mean for us? How does that land in you? And we have to turn to the gospel, another gospel, actually two, Matthew and Mark. We have to tune in to two other gospels to find out what happened right after the ear scene. Because for whatever reason, John does not include this little detail, but Mark and Matthew do. And the interesting thing about Mark, including this detail that we're about to read, is that this person, many scholars believe, the person that's spoken of in this uh, gospel here is actually Mark himself. So this is an incredibly embarrassing thing that we're about to hear about how chaotic and how cowardly his men were. Again, I need you the most, more than I ever will in my entire life, and you're going to run away in the middle of the chaos. So this is the scene that unfolds right after the ear gets chopped off. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Nope. Go back real quick. Think about that. Mark himself is saying this. Matthew says the exact same phrase. All of us deserted him and ran away. All of us. We just left him. But how did they leave him? What was the scene like? That's verse 41 and, or 51 and 52. Now a certain young man, again, scholars think this is Mark, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him, Jesus. And they caught hold of him. So what was he wearing exactly? So scholars, again, believe. So here's the guy sleeping. Right? So they think what happened is they took off outer garments. So they're sleeping in this kind of thin linen garment that basically would have been like a nightgown, right? And nothing underneath. And so here they are, at least Mark, dressed in this, nothing but a linen cloth because the chaos that's ensued, he just gets up and starts following. But what happens? 52. But he left the linen cloth behind and ran away, what? But naked. It'd be comical, if not incredibly sad, because the chaos breaks out, a fight breaks out, because now they're trying to arrest Mark as well, and what happens? That linen cloth, as he's wrestling, is like just ripped off over the top of his head, and he just takes off. So that's the kind of scene, that's the kind of panic, that is the amount of energy they had to get away from Jesus Christ, again, when he needed them most. It wasn't just like they kind of slunk away, like a scuffle broke out and to the point where he runs away naked. Like this is the reality of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's watching unfold as he's being taken away. All of his guys run away to the point where they're not even willing to be caught, that they'd rather run away naked. And the, the honesty of this passage, if Mark in fact wrote this about himself, is, is incredible. Like there's just so much honesty there. You know, I would have made myself look a lot better. I don't know about you. I'm like, oh, I tried to put up a fight. You know, it was like, you know, I would have come up with something, but he is like, he just, I love how scripture is so honest. And these guys told such embarrassing stories about themselves because this is what the scene was like. And so the bottom line is that Jesus was completely alone. He was completely alone to face the most excruciating and awful thing a human could face. All alone. So does Jesus understand when you feel all alone, when you're abandoned, when life is unfair, when you've tried to help people and they seems like they couldn't care less? You poured into people for years and they stab you in the back. Think about that at work, at school, your friends, your neighbors. I mean, does Jesus get that? Yeah. I, ho- I hope you can see that this is a reality. This is Hebrews 4 right here, what we read as our call to worship. Like this is him being like, yep, yeah, I get it. I totally understand. So the story unfolds, and he moves. Um, I'm going to move quickly through this next section of this story, because the first thing is that Peter denies Jesus once. Uh, and then as the story keeps going, 
He's going to go to Annas, who's the former high priest. The Romans kind of, they put people in power and then they took them out in power in the high priest position for Jews. And then Jesus, while he's there, is mocked. He's slapped around. Then after that, he's brought to Caiaphas, who at this time is the current high priest. And then Peter's going to deny him twice more. The other gospels will give us the detail that Peter was actually looking at Jesus when he denied him the third time. And again, so here's Jesus Christ. This is his best friend. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Peter is probably Jesus' best friend. And here he is, not just running away from Jesus, but actively denying him after the fact. To the point now he's like making eye contact with Jesus as he's doing, and it just wrecks him and brings him to tears. Like that's, what, that, like that's his story. And Jesus is looking right at him as it happens. So it's just like the knife keeps getting dug. The knife keeps getting twisted for Jesus and how he's being totally abandoned. And so then after that, Jesus is going to be brought before Pilate because the Jews can't kill anybody. They need the Roman emperor to do that, or the Roman power to do that. And they need the governor Pilate to be a part of this process. So here he is in the presence of Pilate. Verse 33. So then Pilate went back into the headquarters. He summons Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking on your own or have you been told by others about me? Verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. And this, another one of these depressing verses, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. So again, this goes back to John 1, chapter 11. He came to his own people, right? The Jews, his own people did not receive him. So not only did he, is he being abandoned by his best friends, but the entire nation, Jesus came, I came, said, I came first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. The very people I came to save are abandoning me. And even Pilate is recognizing this, like, this difficulty here. These are supposed to be your own people, man. And they're, they're the ones that want you crucified. And so it's just like, again, at, at every step of the way, Jesus is just, uh, just suffering emotionally. He's suffering spiritually because he is completely alone. Everybody has abandoned him. And then it goes on. So Pilate asks, what have you done? Pilate, just is, he's this character you can see. He's constantly confused. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says, right? Prayer in John 17. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So you're a king then, Pilate asks. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. But look at this. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is the truth, uh, of the truth listens to my voice. And then verse 38, what's truth? What is truth? Said Pilate. So when we think of the, the cute little baby scene in a couple months during Advent, during Christmas, you need to remember that the cuteness of the cradle was meant to be the horror of the cross, right? The cuteness of the cradle is not the story. It's the horror of the cross. Jesus Christ is pointing this out. The whole reason I was born was because I'm about to do this. This is what I'm here for. I'm here so that man and God can have a relationship again. That is my mission. That is what I'm here for. And today, I know there's so many people that get so upset about like, oh, truth is just so up for grabs. And, you know, everybody says truth is relative now and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I know people have always been saying that. For thousands of years, literally, people have been saying that. And yet, somehow, here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus Christ, and people are still sharing this truth. And God is still moving his mission forward. God is still saving people, right? And we get to do baptisms. 
2,000 years after Jesus said, hey, baptize people when they become my followers. Because we're all these links in a chain, right? We are all a link in the chain. And Jesus Christ said, look, you're going to have to fight these fights different than you think. Because people don't want to hear truth. That is the world that we live in, and it always has been, right? We want to be right. I don't want you telling me what truth is, right? And so you have this tension here with Pilate. And what's going to happen then next is that Jesus in chapter 19 is going to be flogged, and he is going to be ridiculed, and then he is going to be crucified. And so in here, though, you see this, Jesus being flogged and ridiculed in chapter 19 in verse 1. Look at this. So after this little exchange, Pilate says, and um, I'm sorry, so 18, 40, did you have that one? Okay. So he asked Jesus or Barabbas to the people, and they're like, no, nah, we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Go ahead and release Barabbas to us, not Jesus. So the crowd now is in crowd mentality mode, and they are totally like fomenting this hatred toward Jesus. We don't want Jesus. Give us this criminal Barabbas. Set him free. And so now the crucifixion story, really as we kind of talk about around Easter, begins. But think about everything that has happened to Jesus, the weight of the emotions and the loneliness and abandonment that he has carried to this moment. What has he had to go through up to chapter 19? So in verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, or some of your translations might say scourged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. So Jesus, the creator of the universe, is being ridiculed as a fake king. Verse 3, and they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. And again, this is something that Jesus had said several times. So go to that next slide, PJ. So three times now, it's been recorded in other Gospels. They all say that Jesus said this, mocked, flogged, killed, and raised on the third day. Slight variations on some of those words, but Jesus has recorded three different places in three different Gospels that he called this ahead of time, that he was going to be mocked, flogged, killed, and raised on the third day. Again, was Jesus a victim of circumstance? Did God kill Jesus? No. God willingly gave up his life, and he knew it was going to happen because that is the purpose. That is the purpose. Do you guys have that much energy, I wonder? As a follower of Jesus Christ, do you say, this is the whole purpose of Jesus' existence, and this is the message that I get to carry forward, that I want to be a link in the chain of other people being able to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and watching it change their lives? I got to talk to a couple friends on Friday night, and it was incredible to talk to them and say, you know, this relationship thing with Jesus thing is like, it's totally changing everything for us. They just recently got baptized, and they're like, you know, our marriage is different. The way we treat each other, the way I am at work is different. Our kids are noticing it, that we're different people now all of a sudden, that we're different toward one another. I'm selling stuff because I don't need it anymore. Like that, I'm not defined by my, my truck or my stuff or anything else. Like my, it's like my whole life is being changed, and I'm finding freedom in all this stuff. Like do you realize that's, that, that's what Jesus is offering? Because what the world gives is like, it's just poison. Like, and we're drinking a lot of the poison. And he's like, look, I came for this purpose to set you free from all that garbage. Like, it's not just heaven, which is amazing. It's this life. Jesus says, I want you to have an abundant life here. Jesus actually cares about us. He actually gets us. So in three different places, he's going to talk about this. Now, I did want to look uh, briefly at what it means to be flogged or scourged, because this is something that we can really, really breeze over. Because, again, the, the narrative in the Gospels is so quick, you can be like, oh, yeah, Jesus gets beaten before he goes. Now, Jews, so this is the difference. Jews had something that uh, Paul himself experienced, the 40 lashes minus one. 
So 39 times you'd be beat with a rod, which is not good. I don't want that either. But what the Romans did with the scourging was meant to basically rip you to pieces. And there was a very specific way that Romans had developed to do this. So they would tie you up to a post in a bent over position, and you'd be like this. And what they would do is they would begin to work V patterns from your arms and shoulders across your back toward your spine and all the way down your back. And as you were like this, they would begin to just rip chunks of your skin and muscle away from your bones, literally exposing all of your bones. And they would work down toward your spine. And then they would go into your buttocks and they would go into the back of your legs. And so this punishment was meant to extract amounts of information from you, but it was really ultimately going to kill you. And it's why Jesus Christ could not carry his own cross to his own death, because he was dying, right? That's why Jesus Christ needed that assistance, is because he was literally falling down from all the blood he was losing and the shock that his body was going into. So you think about all the emotional distress that Jesus was going through, and he steps out to meet the the captors. Remember, he stepped out to meet them, knowing exactly, again, he said it several times, I'm going to be flogged, beaten, I'm going to be mocked. I'll be crucified, but I'm going to come back on the third day because that's my mission. So he knows this, and he steps into it, knowing what's going to happen. Every, every person back then knew exactly what this was going to look like, and he knew it was coming for him. So imagine the emotional weight of that, that he was going to have to go through that. And so I found a video online that I wanted to show us to give us an idea, because again, we are 2,000 years removed from this. Like, what is a scourging? What did they use? What did that look like? And I'm not going to show you an actual scourging, but there was a pastor that did a short teaching on this, which I thought he did really, really well. So rather than just try to replicate it, I wanted to show you his teaching. And I cut quite a bit out. But this guy does a good job of showing, one, he shows us what it looks like, like an actual scourge, what it looks like. But then he starts doing some displays on different things. And so at first, what I cut out, you know, for time, he has a piece of plexiglass set up in front of this wall. And this guy just takes this thing, and he's just swinging it like this. And it is totally destroying this piece of plexiglass. It's like putting holes in it, and then eventually it's completely shattering a piece of plexiglass just by, like, doing this. And then he progressively adds different things in and shows you what they do to these different items. And so I want you to look and see and count. I want you to count how many times he's going to hit this thick piece of like really sturdy cardboard. I want you to count how many times it takes him, again, swinging not really hard, to rip a gigantic gouge in the cardboard. And again, think, what would this do to human skin? It doesn't take much to pierce skin. And so what he's doing to this cardboard, how many does it take to get this huge gouge, this huge hole? Swinging just like he is in this cardboard. So watch. It wasn't until the by Mel Gibson that we really saw the agony, blood, and torture of the flogging. And some people said, well, that's Hollywood exaggeration. Was it? Historically, the first century historian Josephus writes that some prisoners died from the scourging even before the crucifixion. They would bleed to death. They were not just whip marks on the back. No, the back would be torn to pieces. You see, the scourging wasn't meant to kill. You could kill faster with a sword. It was meant to inflict maximum pain to extract information. If you don't want any more lashes, tell us the truth. Tell us where the rebels are hiding. And most would tell the Romans what they wanted to hear. Because the Romans didn't stop until they died. One description from a third century historian writes, 
Christian martyrs in Smyrna were so torn by the scourges that their veins were laid bare and their inner muscles, sinews, and even entrails were exposed. The Roman flagrum, or as incorrectly called the cat of nine tails. You see at the end of each strap, there'll be sharp glass or nails or jagged bone embedded in the tips. As you can see, any one of these can slice through human skin or punch holes in it. Imagine dozens of these lashes. You can imagine how muscles would be torn and ripped. And some historians describe how a victim's rib bones can be seen through the rips in the skin. After all this torture, you bet the criminal would either change his story or tell the truth. If Jesus was just faking that he's the Messiah, or if Jesus wasn't 100% sure he was who he claimed to be, you bet he would have changed his story. But the Bible tells us Jesus did not back down. He didn't take back his claims. That's why after the scourging, Pilate was afraid. Because Pilate knows any other criminal after this would confess to his wrongdoing. But Jesus sticks to his story. So Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. Even worse, what if Jesus is who he claims to be? Since Pastor Jason Kim uh, is the one that made that. And when you see what Jesus went through, and after he's beaten like this, there, this is something that was talked about. The, the amazing thing is that this is something that was talked about 700 years before this ever happened. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. And it gives graphic detail about what the suffering servant would go through. And I'm talking historically. I'm not just talking like, oh, yeah, we think this is 700 years before. We know when, the, when Isaiah was written. Textually speaking, historically speaking, we know when it was written. And Isaiah would say this in chapter 52. Like, what would this person look like, this suffering servant? Just as many of you were appalled, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. That's how badly beaten this person would be. This suffering servant, 700 years from now, is going to be beaten so badly for our sin that we're going to be able to hardly recognize him as a human. And then Isaiah 53, he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our sin. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all want to stray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the sin of us all. Like 700 years before Jesus ever came to earth, this was predicted. And like, this is the kind of punishment he's going to go through to pay for our sin. And so in verse five of the continuing on in chapter 19, given the state that he's in, the, like the, the, what his body would have been doing, bleeding out on the verge of death, Pilate then verse five brings him out by this time, obviously a total mess. And he's wearing the crown of thorns. He's wearing the purple robe, being mocked as a fake king. And Pilate said to them, here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. According to the law, he must die. 
because he made himself the son of God. The son of God is not actually son of God. The son of God is equality with God. And that's why the Jews got so angry at him for using that because he was saying he was God. He was making himself equal with God. And then verse 15, they shouted. This continues to go on, this frenzy. Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. So now you have a total abandonment, a total rejection. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then he handed them over or him over to be crucified. So think, think through that with me. This scene, he's been totally abandoned by his friends. Now he's been completely rejected by his own people. Jesus literally has nobody. Nobody. So that, that question, does Jesus understand you? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Like Hebrews 4 said, we have a high priest in Jesus Christ that gets everything. He gets everything. And this is, this is his reality, complete and total rejection here. And then we have Jesus being crucified. Most horrific form of shameful public punishment reserved for the worst of criminals. And here's Jesus, the sinless one, being crucified. But there's a scene after the crucifixion that I want you to see because in John chapter 2, we talked about this briefly at the beginning of this series. Verse 26, Jesus would say from the cross, looking at his mom, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, John, standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. So again, the same thing he says to her in, in chapter two, here we see how tender this word actually is and the care that he has for his mom. And then in verse 27, then he said to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So this is the kind of savior that we have in the midst of the most suffering that he could ever possibly human go through or humanly go through. He is caring for the very people that rejected him. Like for the very people that rejected him and ran away from him, he's making sure that his, he's talking to John, like, I want you to care for my mom, right? I want you to be there for her. I want you to do this. And he's just speaking love from the cross, right? And don't forget, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? Like, this is Jesus Christ. This is the kind of Savior that we have from the cross. And then I want you to see another character, Nicodemus, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, you know, resurrection is next week. But Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came to help prepare the body. And then verse 40, they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices that they had brought. Nicodemus had a front row seat to who Jesus Christ is, and it radically changed his life because this is a very, very dangerous thing to do for Nicodemus. It's him walking away from his whole life. He can no longer be a part of the Sanhedrin. His whole entire training, his whole entire identity, it's all gone by doing this right here, by taking part and identifying as one of Jesus' followers his whole life as he knows it, it, is different, is changed. And why? Because he watched Jesus up close and personal and realized that Jesus Christ was a real deal. And I wonder, do you realize that? Do you understand that Jesus Christ is a real deal? Because every time he met somebody, you can see, man, when they leaned into Jesus, it changed everything for them. And again, there's the resurrection, and that's where we're going to be next week. But I want to close with a couple thoughts, though. Like, do you, when you pray, do you really understand who you're praying to? Do you understand that you're praying to God and that God, the creator of the universe, literally understands what you're going through? That doesn't mean he's going to make it end because he did not make it end for himself. But do you realize that there's strength there in the name of Yahweh? There's strength in the name of Jesus. There, you have the ability to lean into a God who actually does understand you and went to great lengths to show you that he actually understands. Not just saying, but doing these kinds of things. And I want to end with Hebrews 4. I want to go back where we started from. Hebrews 4, this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. 
We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we've got one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's walked in our shoes. And then the purpose of all that, so that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Once you accept Christ as your Savior, you have direct relationship so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I was reading something just this morning, and I added it in because I wanted to share it. It's a a quote from this pastor who's like, just really, he's wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus and how that should affect our lives, knowing that we've got a Jesus that really does understand us. He said, if we really understood how much Jesus loves us and knows us, it would change how we live. It would change how we spend our money. It would change how we love, how we forgive, what we watch, what we say, how much we sprinkle grace on our truth. If we really understood how much Jesus loves us, which we saw today, it would change everything. So when you find yourself struggling this week, will you go boldly to the throne and say, Jesus Christ, I need help. This is my hour of need, and I know you understand. Like, do you know that you've got a Savior like that? Like, I need wisdom. James also says, James, a half-brother of Jesus, if you need wisdom, you can come confidently to your Savior Jesus, who will give you that wisdom without rebuking you. That's James chapter 1. Why? Because he understands. Why? Because he does want you to know his will. Why? Because he does actually care about you. Like, he actually cares about you. That's a big deal that I think a lot of Christians don't quite absorb enough. I know I haven't for a long time in my life. But meet Jesus as he is, not, again, not as we've created him to be, because it's life-changing when you really meet Jesus Christ. Life-changing. Tim, could you come up? Is Tim in here? Can uh, He had to go back downstairs. All right, so I'm going to uh, close this in prayer. Um, but I want, you to, to have, I want you to have a second, too, to just ask God where you are right now. Like, where, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, you've accepted him as Savior, like, w- where do you need to let Jesus into? Like, how do you need to maybe look at Jesus differently this morning if you need to? What work do you need to let God do in your heart? And if you don't know Christ as Savior, then take that time. This right here, what we read today is why Jesus Christ came. It's why he was born, to be your Savior. So if you've not done that, if you've not said, yeah, Lord, I, I need a Savior. I know I'm a sinner, and I want you to be my Savior. You need to take that step and believe in the name of Jesus. Because Paul would say in Romans 3, we're made right with God by believing that Jesus Christ sacrificed his life and shed his blood. Like accepting that personally. So Lord, as we close out today, would you do the work that you need to do in us, how we approach you, how we, how we see you, Lord. You are God. You did this mission on purpose. And it gives us access to you. Lord, for those that don't know you, I pray Jesus Christ that they would, right now, before they leave, they would accept you as Savior, that they would believe in what you have done for them personally. Not just that you did it, but you did it for them. Just give you space, Holy Spirit, to to speak, do the work that you need to do. Would you go with us, Lord, this week? Would you help us to understand that we have access to you and we have mission? We get to plug people into you. Would you be with us this weekend, Jesus, as we just try to love our community and just try to be a light, Jesus Christ, as we help people take small steps and get to know you, Lord? Would you help us with that? Help us be light in this world. And I pray that in your name, Jesus Christ. And his church said, amen. If you want to be a part of what's going on, loving our community, please go over there. Check out something to be a part of and sign up for. We'd love to have you join us. God bless. We love you all. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. 
Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.